Jason. Insert aluminum hats on head. Oh my gosh, Alex. <laughs> I know you're joking, but I scared the crap out of myself. I've been watching way you... too much conspiracy stuff. You need to read. Oh my god! Are you reading your Bible? Are you getting? Are you getting down with the Lord every First day? First of all, I don't read my Bible, Alex. I listen to it. Oh, you're one of get those. It, yeah, get it right. That's a fake Bible, Jason. You know what? It's got music to it, <laughs> so it's better than yours. I do want to get the. There is a Bible out there, an audio Bible. It's the black read, read by all black actors. What is it? I can't. I, I can't remember what it's called specifically. Maybe our listeners know, but I had a friend of mine who got it for her birthday one year, and I, you just read through the list of names that are on. It's just like, you know, who plays the voice of God? James Earl Jones. Oh, I heard about that. My goodness, that's, uh, that's be what I was great. just gonna say. I was just gonna say James Earl Jones. Like that would be like if he could read me the Bible. You know what I thought of? I told Jess this. You know what we need to do on our show from now on? What? It, well, first of all. On one of the Christian radio stations, they have like a little Bible segment with Darth Vader. Darth Vader reads the Bible, and my kids love it. But like your Gollum voice, we should do every time we do scripture reading on the show, you should read it as Gollum. No, no, rejoice always and pray constantly. <laughs> That's uh. First Thessalonians five sixteen and seventeen. <laughs> we gotta make that happen. <laughs> if you want Alex to read the Bible as Gollum, please send us a dollar on Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you have to send us feedback. <laughs> we need to make that happen. I don't know if I'd be able to keep a straight face, but anyway, Alex, I've been listening to all these conspiracy theories, yeah. and I want. We're going to do another episode on conspiracies coming up in part two. Yes. And I want... Before they I'm, shut us down. I'm giving you guys some homework as listeners because I heard this crazy one and I don't think it's so crazy on Facebook listening to you. Alex, do you think Facebook listens to you? I don't know. It's a bear shit in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so this, this couple on YouTube had this theory that Facebook was listening to him because they would be talking about something... And all of a sudden, they would notice an ad would pop up in their Facebook feed. Yeah. And they'd be like, hey, I don't remember typing that. We were just talking about that, but here it is. So they did an experiment on their phone, and they don't own a cat. So they just talked about cat food. Was the phone on? or was The it phone just- was on. And the Facebook app, because the Facebook app was must have been on, but in the background. Oh, so they had their phone open with the Facebook app open. Yeah, and they were just having just normal conversation about cat food. They don't own a cat, but just little things like, oh, man, I heard so-and-so bought this kind of cat food. I wonder what we should buy. Oh, the cat looks hungry. Just like little things like that. And then two days later in their Facebook news feed, cat food ads. Mm-hmm. Never typed it into any search engines. That's that's Satan. We're not right talking there. about cookies. We're talking about Facebook might be listening to and it freaked me out. So I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. Like you, you pretty much agree to hand over your firstborn child. When you, you do click, when you click on those things. So so homework is I want people to try that out and report back to us. I'm gonna try it out. I'm gonna pick something this week. I'm talking to my phone or have a conversation with my wife with a Facebook app open and see if those ads pop up. Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to think of what what thing that I'm not really into that I could just start making a 
conversation about that it, it would eventually like pick up on like I want to buy Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I'll just keep saying that into my phone yeah. until they start like advertising it to me. Or I'll say uh, communion bread. <laughs> Are you trying to make a segue? I am. Are you trying to get out of this intro and get into the episode because I'm not going to let you. I'm just kidding. Uh, no. So we talked about baptism last week. And what better way to follow up an episode on baptism than with an episode on the Lord's the Supper? Supper? Oh, I tried to do it with you in unison and it failed. Oh, I was too busy dancing. You you were. You had a little Irish jig going there. <laughs> Lord's Supper. <laughs> gonna partake of the bread and wine. Oh, so we got an awesome guest <laughs> today. That was a great song. We got, a, we got an awesome guest on today, uh, Kenneth Tanner, who has had this lifetime of ministry, but has spent the last 13 years at Holy Redeemer in Rochester. And he comes on to talk. Rochester. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> Anybody listening from Rochester is like, no, and just turned it off. Hey, you want to go have a beer at the Rochester Brewery? <laughs> Sorry. You sound like you're in Flight of the Concords. You sound like Jermaine. You ever watch Flight of the Concords? I love that show. We, Justin and I went and saw him live. We spent up a diem on these leather suits. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, my face hurts seeing them live. But anyway, communion. Total derailment. The Eucharist, if you will. The Lord's Supper. It's got all kinds of names. Let's break bread. Whatever you'd like to call it. That's what we're talking about in this episode. Absolutely. So... Kenneth does a great job. We had a lot of fun with him, and uh, he, thanks Charlie Porter yeah. for hooking us up with the interview. So yeah. thanks Charlie, uh, Jason. Yeah, um, I don't know if you heard, but there's a podcast out there. It's got two guys who couldn't make it as pastors. Mm. You know, which I'm, I'm intrigued. About. This speaks to me. It's about it's us. Yeah, I know. It's our story. It's us, and we are going to do the most fantastical, awesome. Not your pastors, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, Communion, Divine Liturgy, Divine Liturgy episode. Kick it. (laughs) All right, Not Your Pastor podcast peoples, we are here with Kenneth Tanner. Say what's up, Kenneth. Hi, good to see every good to see everyone. Good to hear. <laughs> Let's start over again. No, there's no turning back now. No turning this ship around. Whatever it may be, the USS Eucharist. That's what we'll call it. <laughs> USS Eucharist. <laughs> anyway, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here. My privilege. So, like. This is this is um, a topic that I've wanted to cover for a long time. It's I, Sacraments Month. It was yeah, not your, uh, we covered uh, baptism last month or last oh, week, Kenneth. Yeah. And now we're doing Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist. I feel like there's so many different terms and labels. For yeah, it. that's my yeah. first question: is what do we call this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Orthodox say divine liturgy. I think a lot of like Roman Catholics and a lot of high church Protestants say Eucharist. Um, a lot of low church folks say Lord's Supper um, or alternatively communion. 
Um, and I, I, I think sometimes it's, it, it, what we call it has a little bit of to do with how we understand, um, the meal, but it's the same meal. I mean, it's the same thing that Christ is, um, offering. He's offering himself to us. So I'm not sure what we call it is as important as what it is. So would you, would you grow up calling it Alex? Uh, we called quick. it we called it communion when I went to when I was a Catholic and then we just called it Lord's Supper. Yeah, I was gonna say we called it Lord's Supper. But yeah, I remember calling it communion. I remember doing my first communion. I remember I thought it was a big deal because I was like, now I get to participate in snack time, which I don't know if seven year olds can really fully grasp what they're partaking in. <laughs> but uh I remember growing up that I was allowed to eat the the bread, I was allowed to eat the wafer that they would give you. And I could still remember the taste in my mouth of that, that mm. Catholic wafer. Um, not bad for those of you who haven't tried it. It, it, it doesn't have like a distinct You're taste. Getting the delicious. I love those things. <laughs> Jason's just eating a box of them. We uh, seriously, when Jess, milk. Was, when Jess was pregnant, we went and bought a box of them. Oh. You can go get them at Meyer. Really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> not, not. I guess not the Catholic ones specifically. What's it? Is it matzah bread? Oh no, the, this matzah. is the Catholic yeah. ones are different. They are yeah. different. They are different for sure. But then my mom would never let me uh, partake of the cup because she's like, we all drink from the same cup, and she's like, I, I just don't want you getting sick, honey. So just walk on by. So I'm like, oh, I, I only got to eat the bread. I never got to try the wine. So that's my. It's fairly common in Catholic churches for the the laity to bypass the chalice. Um, and I, 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 I think sometimes it's the germ thing, but I think, I mean, most of the time it's not because the metals and the alcohol are actually supposed to uh, be, uh, you know, make it actually quite sanitary to drink from a common cup. But um, I think it's just a, a habit and the way people were raised to kind of, to, to, to walk on by. I, I think um, you know um, it's good to to take the bread and the wine, you know, um, if you can. So, yeah. And, Go ahead, Jason. Sorry. No, I, I was just thinking. I got an embarrassing story. So, I mean, I grew up Baptist, and then later Church of Christ, and you know, we had our particular way of doing things. You pass this little tray of these little tiny cups that have you know Welch's grape juice in them. And, uh, you know, you, you just sit there in your row. You don't have to get up. Somebody passes you the tray, and then you take the little cup, and mm-hmm. and you drink it, and then you either put it back in the tray, or you put it into the back of the pew in a little tiny hole, like... Oh, yeah, I remember those. Holder. Yeah. I used to, as a kid, I'd love to put my fingers through all those. I don't know why. Some of them were felt-lined. It was nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, and then, yeah, the, you know, just... Just going through that basic practice, but then there was one time where my my buddy, his his grandfather had passed away, and I didn't know his grandfather at all, but we were in high school, and it was kind of my first time in a Catholic church, and they had, they had communion there, and of course, me, uh, very punk rock at the time with my blue hair, um, who mm-hmm. just assumed I knew everything about church because I grew up in church, and what's what's this? I mean, it's... I mean, no, it's a Catholic church, but it can't be that different, right? <laughs> and uh, oh, we go didn't to know. do communion, and we line up, and I just I get in line, and he 
he offered the cup and everybody else, like he was, the priest was, you know, tipping the cup and people were drinking right. from it, but not That's touching right. the cup. Um, you know, it's this really passive right. act, it's, but then I, know, it, it, you're, yeah, you're receiving rather than taking. Yeah. So. Except I took the cup out of his hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, because I didn't know what I was doing, but yeah. I got it. It all worked out because I, I guess for being at a funeral and all, I, I guess I was the comic relief the next day. And uh, Oh, the Pope's got your name in a special little book. <laughs> lightened up the mood for the family, I guess. They were all laughing at me, and I guess I, I guess that was a good distraction. That, I thought you were going to say you took a big gulp and didn't realize it was wine. And I didn't realize that either. And then your was head was spinning. <laughs> but uh, I have I have a young woman who's got purple hair who's an acolyte for us now and yeah. I love that. Um, yeah, so um, I think like I was listening to you talk about like you know the trays and it, like passing it around and 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 I think I think some all of these things that we do with the sacrament have a lot I think a lot to do in in the ways we practice it differently have a lot to do with the way we think about the the sacrament. Yeah. So in a, in a, in a place where everyone has their individual cup and every and and the crackers that I think what it says one of the things that practice say says not I'm not judging one way of doing it over another but I do think it says this is something that's happening between you and God as an individual transaction rather than something that's happening communally. Um, and, and, and I think also, as you were indicating, that in, in Catholic and Anglican Lutherans, a lot they will hand you the bread, and they will, um, uh, they will offer the cup to you so that you're in a receptive rather than a taking mode. It has a lot to do with, with what you think is going on. You know, what, are you, what is happening here? And so different churches have, de- have developed um, different practices um, based on, uh, on what they think is going on. You know? so. That's, that's kind of like the, my main first question is why are there so many differences? Like how did this <laughs> – and that, that might be too, too broad of a question to ask for this. I mean how long you got, Jason? A, a we got, podcast, we but... can do like three hours of church history. It's just it, – it, yeah. it, it blows my mind how it's so vastly different. Um, like the the church we go to to now, you go up to a table and there's crackers that are already broken on the table, and you take the cracker and you dip it in a cup. Mm-hmm. But it's still, you know, you you don't get that symbolism. I guess I guess I mean I don't know if that's the right word, but of it being more of a passive act, or as you receiving it, you're more of you're doing something in the act of partaking in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so, um, I I think I think receiving. I mean, we we can get. I mean, that's a big question that you ask about why you know different churches do it different ways. For for instance, even between the the first Christians who are divided between the Roman Catholic churches and the churches that are, um, you know, uh, in allegiance with the Pope, and then the collection of churches that together the other patriarchs represent the Eastern Orthodox, um, even reception there is quite different than it is. It's still reception rather than taking, but you know, there, the, the, the bread is put into the chalice and there's a spoon in the Eastern church and they give you a piece of bread with the, 
with the wine together, they spoon it in, huh. into your mouth. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, it, it, even going back um, as far back as we can go, there are different ways in which it, it is received and distributed. And um, I think it just has to do with um, the divisions that have occurred um, in the church. There's only one church, um, and G- its oneness is derived from the person of Jesus. But in history, uh, the church is divided, and I think that division is not God's will, as made clear in John 17, but it, it has to do with the human element of 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 the church and and our stubbornness and pride and um our our bickering and uh, over things i do believe that divisions over the eucharist um also are are present because the enemy of our soul wants christians divided specifically over things as powerful as baptism and eucharist and that we've cooperated with um, that kind of spirit of division um, uh, in so many ways, but it, you know that it's present at this meal, which should be the thing that brings Christians of all backgrounds and types together because of the reality of what's being offered uh, to us as a gift. And I think one of the thing, I, I think the reason why reception is is to receive it is better. This is God acting. This isn't something we do. Um, this is God acting uh, both to make us one, uh, to uh, to draw us into their life, um, to make us the body of Christ. I love what Augustine says, you know, behold what you are, as the host is put at your eye level and then placed in your hands, and then become what you receive. Behold, You are the body of Christ, and now in this sacrament, you're becoming uh, the body of Christ. Uh, you, plural, together. Um, so, um, yeah. So I love, Kenneth, the way you just bring up the idea of the sacraments bringing the church together in oneness as opposed to being something that we should be so divided over. And I just remember this story of this pastor down in Texas, and I listened to his podcast quite a bit, where he did a whole series of his church down in Texas, this this very much Protestant, you know, like, you know, deep South American church uh, talking about the Apostles' Creed and how that it's not something that we should get freaked out about. This is something that not just Catholics do, but the whole church did, the whole church universal did at some point in history. And when we, we say it together, we are echoing what our forefathers, the people that you said it before us, are saying that we agree, that we are in agreement of what this creed says. And I thought that was yeah. really cool. Yeah. So cool. So great. And if you were the enemy of the church, where would you attack the unity of the church? You would attack the unity of the church precisely in the meal in which we recall the death of Christ and we are made one uh, with him. Uh, and, uh, and, he, and of course, the waters of baptism are troubled for the same reason. I mean, um, you know, it's... Uh, um, you know, both our inclination to division and our inclination to bickering and our inclination to quarreling and um, are at the root of it. But I, I also think that there uh, there's a, you know, darkness that is opposing um, the church. And, uh, of course, it's going to attack us at these 
very, very beautiful um, material and spiritual um, places where we ought to be together rather than apart. Yeah, I yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it seems to me, you know, I I grew up uh, at you know relatively small churches, and now I go to such a big church, and it mm. it just looks almost like a melting pot of people from different backgrounds coming in, and to me, it almost seems like okay, what's the right way to proceed? And we kind of pick one, but at the same time, uh, we don't do the Lord's Supper every our communion what whatever you'd want to call it well we, jason we there's no specific time <laughs> that i heard so many pastors say that well there's no like specific set time in scripture that you're how many times you're supposed to do it i'm like so do it more <laughs> like yeah so that's, i guess that's my next question is the frequency like how often how often kenneth should in your opinion should we you know partake in this yeah so um, maybe we maybe we could just say what you know what is this meal right yeah so I I look to Paul's teaching First Corinthians uh, in, in chapter ten um, and he's actually talking about eating food offered to idols he has this really interesting aside in the middle of it and he says. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Hmm. Is not the cup that we bless a participation in his blood? And then we all eat from the one loaf because we are one body. And, you know, I, I look to, the, of course, the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think we can just trust that Jesus says that it is what it is. Um, and uh, we don't have to parse the definition of that word. We can just accept what Jesus says that it is. And I think if it's that, if it's what Paul says it is, and it's what Jesus says that it is, and Jesus says, do this as often as you gather to remember me, then we can also say, and as the first Christians, I mean, it's, you know, Alex was talking about, um, you know, um, scripture. I mean, we, I think we also want to be people that look at the pattern of the first Christians, not only in the New Testament, but specifically in the first several hundred years afterwards. This meal was just part of worship, right? I mean, you took the synagogue service, that's what the first Christians did. They were Jews, and those who converted from um, a pagan worship of pagan idols took um, that, they were incorporated into that, which would involve prayer, singing, readings from Scripture, a homily, a sermon on the Scriptures, and they, they, they combined it with the Lord's Supper, and that's how they worshiped, and they, that's how they worshiped every week. So, yes, in the history of the church post-Reformation, some of the Reformed churches stopped practicing Eucharist on a weekly basis, but there's been no time in the history of the church where the majority of Christians don't think about weekly worship 
as a participation in that, in the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, divine liturgy, whatever you call it. And our American experience, and I think sometimes Protestant experience, might skew in our mind this idea that what that what we were doing growing up or what, what we're doing now is somehow like not an anomaly. It's an anomaly. I mean, yeah. even today, if you take Christians worldwide, I'm not talking about just at the Reformation or, or in the medieval era or in the Pacific era. Right now, the majority of Christians worldwide take Eucharist every Sunday. It's just what they do. It's part of worship. So the experience of not doing it is the anomaly. And we have to ask ourselves why we started not doing it. Oh, man. So coming over from the Church of Christ, they this is one thing, and, and I have a lot of baggage tied into a particular location of the Church of Christ, um, as I've made known on the show, but one of the things I wholeheartedly miss is taking, is doing communion no every single Sunday. That's that's just standard practice there, and and we don't do it at our church. In fact, we don't do it very often at all. Maybe once every couple of months. And I've when I first came over, I was very hard on her on our pastoral staff. And at one point, I think I almost had them convinced to to start doing it every Sunday, but it, it came down to a logistical issue. But but going back to your, your point and the Stone the Stone Campbell revivals were um Eucharistic gatherings. I mean that's it was that's how all those people came together. They were coming together to do Eucharist. Yeah. And so that's why it um the revivals happened in the midst of these kind of camps where they would come together and do uh, and have the Lord's Supper, which is what they called it. And, um, and and it was a return to that ancient practice within a Protestant setting. Um, anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Jason. No, I was just I was just gonna say like it seems often in our church we try to get people more involved, right? The great fear is that they're coming to a worship gathering and just consuming it as if it were going to the movies or something. We come up at our appointed time. We sit in a row, we say hi to people, and then the band plays their music, the preacher preaches his message, the band plays another song, and and then everybody scrambles out the door as soon as they can to get on to their next thing. And, and it, it always seems like we're trying to build up unity, build up family. No, you can stick around afterwards. And I just think that having the communion, every having, having communion would be one of those those acts of worship where, yeah, you have to get up and you have to do something different, and you have to do it with each other. And I I don't know. I think it's missing I think it's, uh, from a so week-to-week basis. I, in, in preparation for this episode, I was watching, I was watching a U, some YouTubes, which is a great study tool for anything involving church stuff. Am I right? Can I get an amen uh, out there? <laughs> uh, There's good you, stuff. There's good stuff out there. You know there. what I think YouTube is for me? What? It gives you a fantastic pulse of where the culture's at. Yeah. So, so you can get a good idea if, if a video has, you know, 4 million views, that means 4 million people are, that's what yeah. they think. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, but I was just, I was watching this one and it was, uh, 
I don't want to. I don't want to tarnish this guy's name because I. Th- I feel like he's a great theologian. Don't say it. a name because then people they they start wanting to defend the person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to. I want to say this name because I, it's a it's a well known name. Kenneth said not to say it. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, this I'm is your show, man. Do whatever you want. Oh my god. I'm just playing. I'm, us- I'm All right, using. I won't, you. I won't say the name because that's probably wise. But the it, it's a well that's known my experience. Don't it's a well known theologian. Uh, and he said that there was a, it was like a Q and a panel and he was one of the guys on the panel and they, and a guy asked the question, how often should we do this? Okay. And his answer was really disappointing because he said, well, you don't want to do it too much to where people don't take it seriously That's anymore. That's the fear. That and, is the absolute fear. And I said, and I, I was sitting there in my car watching this YouTube video and I paused it and I said to myself, then make it a huge deal. Yeah. Make it exactly as often as you do it. If you do it once a month, whatever, or every week, make it a huge deal and make sure people know that it's a huge deal. Like this is, this is, this is the Lord's supper. This is Jesus's body. We're this, the representation of Jesus's body being broken. And this is a place for us to come together to confess sin for us just to remember what our Lord did for us on the cross, all these things. I mean, this should be a big deal. I mean, this is what we should be getting in our sermons and then in the songs that we sing. I've heard of churches where they do the preaching first or no, how does, how do they do that? But, oh, before the singing and before they take partake of the sacraments, if there are a church that does it every week, they do the sermon first because they're more have like churches that preach that are like, Preaching 45 driven. minutes, hour yeah. sermons, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. and then everything is out, tagged on the end of it. But the, the right. whole idea was to really align your heart with God through the, hearing the word and being like, holy crap, this is what Jesus did for me. Like Almost like that reminder at the beginning of what the what the scripture says about what Jesus did for us. And now yeah. I'm losing my train of thought because I've been talking for too long. <laughs> um, it happens to the best of us, Alex. But I was like, I was really disappointed in this particular theologian's answer because it's like, you're a guy who's written books upon books upon books about Jesus, about what he's done, about his redemptive work, about the atonement. Make it a big deal because it is. So don't, I don't know. I, I guess I don't understand the whole fear concept of it. I'll tell you where it comes from. Okay, okay, good. First of all, I think that we should have reverence for the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper communion. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I'll give you. A, I'll I'll explain to you one of the reasons why I think that's true. Um, you know, um, Ed Gunger, who's David Gun, Michael David and Michael Gunger's dad, um, once said to me um, in discussing the woman with an issue of blood, who comes to and she we find her in the Gospels crawling on the ground through the crowd, reaching out for the fringe of the garments of jesus and she touches it and the virtue that is christ goes into her and heals whatever has happened and actually jesus amidst the press of the crowd and all the noise and people trying to grab at him feels that virtue leave him and turns around and says, who touched me you know mm-hmm. and she's just touching the fringe of of his garment and this happens. And he said, you know, what's amazing about that is every week we're 
what's put into our hands and touches our lips is not the fringe of the garment of Jesus, but his very flesh and his very blood. And we're taking it into ourselves. So this is just a beautiful, beautiful thing that's happening. And we should want to do it as often as we possibly can. It's so far beyond touching the fringe of his garment. It's taking his very life into ourselves. But the fear comes. And I was taught this as a Pentecostal, and you all might have been taught this in you know your the churches that you've grown up, and is that um, something bad could happen to you? Yes, if you take the Eucharist unworthily. Yeah, and it's a warning from Paul, correct? Well, yeah, it's a misunderstanding of Paul in First Corinthians, but the the um, you the thing you have to start out with is is there any moment? in the life of Christ, where someone comes into contact with Jesus, either by his words or by his actions, that anything other than life, health, strength, beauty, goodness, resurrection, deliverance, um, freedom, uh, healing takes place. No, he's a walking, talking tree of life. And, and, and he represents life, and light. I came, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. I came to give life and life abundantly. And so it's impossible to take Christ and receive death. It's impossible to take Christ and receive anything other than deliverance, healing, virtue, light, life. And so I think the first thing we have to do is banish this irrational fear. Um, Paul is warning in um, 1 Corinthians about the way they're doing the Eucharist because the rich folks, and there were a lot of rich folks in the Corinthian congregation, were consuming all the bread and wine. And the poor who were coming to it were actually looking to that meal as part of their nutritional sustenance were ending up with nothing Hey, and, hey, Kenneth, and, as a side note, I, I just have a real quick question in, in regards to this. Was Did the church ever have, like, in the first the first church or back in the beginning, in the, in the first century, did they have, was it like kind of like a potluck style? Was it was the Lord's Supper yes, part of a bigger uh, yeah, supper? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you, you know, there's there's different ways that was going on. There's agape meal, right? And But the, the point was that Paul's saying, you're not discerning the body. There, this is about all of us partaking together in this meal— and you people are are eating and drinking judgment because you're not discerning this. And I and and I do think that you could take something like that and say that we ought to have reverence as we approach it. But fear is completely ridiculous as a um, as a possibility of you know of encountering something as if the after so the Eucharist could become a poison or the Eucharist could become um, a tainted, um, or, or the Eucharist could be something that would affect you like botulism. I, I think this is absolutely, these fears are completely unfounded. And, and I think we have to banish them, and, and especially to the extent that they're keeping people. Once again, we have all these divisions. If you wanted to sow fear into people's hearts about approaching God, right, then um, uh, 
what you know this is the meal that you would you would say hey don't don't do that don't do that often don't uh, you, something could wrong could happen to you if you if you take that um the considered teaching of the church down the centuries is it's neither the worthiness of the minister who is who is praying over the meal and consecrating it and calling the holy spirit down upon it uh, there were controversies about whether somebody who, you know, who did that was living in sin or um, who held the wrong doctrine or whatever, if that affected the Eucharist. And the church said, absolutely not. And it's the same thing with the people who are coming to the meal. Um, this is something that God is doing. It's a gift. It's something that where he's acting. And it's not about you and the condition of your soul. It's God. It's It's just like baptism. There's nothing you're doing. It's what God is doing. It's what God is up to. Yeah, that that's awesome. <laughs> so I I have a, a question, and I, I my whole entire life, I mean, almost every single communion or Lord's Supper, um, the the phrase would be th- thrown in there. Okay. Now this, as we take this, this does not actually become the flesh of Jesus. This does not okay. actually become the blood of Jesus. That's what the Catholics believe. That's not what we do. Yeah. I mean, it. I mean, up until I mean, it's always been mentioned that. And so, where does where does that come from? Like, where where can we? Does it or does it not? I mean, as you're taking the communion, is it? Does it physically become Jesus? And I, I've heard uh, it also described of, of course it does not. Jesus isn't dying all over again for your sins. He already died for your sins once. And I think that's that's like the, uh, the three-sentence, I guess, argument against it as we're about to partake of the communion. I, first of all, I hate the placement of it. I hate that it's brought up then and there. It's kind of like a tail end. Yeah, because it's a distraction. It's uh, it, it gives me this whole sense of, you know, um, this is the right way to do it, and you know what? Sure. This, it's not the place for that. Let's just let's just partake in it. Um, sure. So. Sure. I think the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, um, how have you practice it? Um, whatever words you say, the prayers that are prayed. Um, it's God who is faithful to um, make it a participation, it make, to make it what Paul says it is, a participation in the body and blood of Christ, um, to make it what Jesus says that it is as he distributes to his disciples, to the doubter, to the betrayer, to the, um, um, to the, to the, to the one who denies him, all at the same table, He's giving this gift of himself, and I think if you get down too much into, like, how does it become the body and blood of Christ, and when does it become the body and blood of Christ, you lose the mystery of the thing. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion participates in the same mystery that the person of Jesus participates. Jesus takes flesh from the Virgin. He's, he, this is, there's no dualities here. He becomes human. He takes on our actual um, nature. Um, and at the same time that he's God. And the, the Eucharist participates in the same mystery. 
It's bread and it's wine. It tastes like bread. It it tastes like wine. It looks like bread. It looks like wine. At the same time, it's it is a participation in the divinity of Jesus. It's a participation in his body and his participation in his in, in, in his humanity and a participation in his divinity. And and how it's that way and when it happens and um and, and all of that I think is a distraction from the mystery for for me personally the way i was raised it's it's hard it's hard to believe that you know this bread and, and the wine um our grape juice actually turns into you know the blood and his flesh but even if even if i don't believe that why would i want to take that away from somebody else like right like why because to me, it, it would be even more. Spe- I mean, Jesus in John chapter six, you know, he's, he he says, "Take my flesh," you know, "take drink my blood," uh, essentially saying, "I am the manna. I am the only thing you need." Um, you know, consume me, and you will find salvation. You'll find rest. You know, and and to me, why would I want to deny somebody else who thinks that that's actually happening in communion? I wish that I could. You know what I'm saying? Like I, and part of me really um, wants to because I, I see this this practice that we do, and I want something more out of it. I guess. Yeah, and I, and again, I think these divisions come because um, when we when we believe that it's something less than what Jesus says it is, or what Paul teaches in First Corinthians thirteen, or what Jesus is saying. Excuse me, First Corinthians ten. Or what, Je- or what Jesus is saying in John 6, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you have life in you, you'll live forever. Um, these are, this is, this is, what's interesting about the Eucharist is it's a scriptural truth. You don't need the um, history of the church or the traditions of men to build a theology of the Eucharist. It's right there in the words of Jesus. It's right there in the words of Paul. And... Um, uh, you know, but but again, let's let's get the Christians and let's and even our own fallen natures. Let's get to arguing about how it happens and exactly um, when it happens and so forth, instead of just accepting in faith um, what's being offered to us as a gift. Um, whether we are approaching in denial, whether we're approaching in doubt, whether we're approaching um, even the betrayer. You know, um, everyone is welcome, and uh, God is is trying to reconcile us all through this action um, to Him and to each other. Um, so, you know, I do I do think that it's important, as Paul says, to you know, um, if you're you're approaching the altar and you have something that you need to confess, you know, uh, in the community with your brother, that you get that all straightened out. Yeah. Uh, before we, we we approach and before we offer our gifts and um, but uh, but but bottom line um, again I think we're just getting back Jason to um, you know this this general division that's crept up yeah. around the meal um, you know you've got some churches that won't allow other Christians to take uh, Eucharist in their church. Um, uh, and um, who say, well, you've got to be a member of this local church to take communion with us. Um, 
where I think, and I, and I was involved in the ecumenical movements for about a decade. And, you know, you, you know, you listen to some of the theologians and I bought into it for a season where, you know, we really shouldn't take Eucharist together until we totally agree in doctrine and we're totally united and so forth and so on. But I don't buy that anymore. No. I think the Eucharist is a meal that comes at us from the future. I think it participates in a future where all Christians are one in Christ. I think it's a meal of the new of the of the new uh, heaven and new earth. I think it's eschatological. Um, and on the basis of our coming unity, where all of this bullshit is done, and we are um, all of the division is over. And uh, we are gathered as one around the risen Christ, um, you know, and we're taking the so we can take it now together in anticipation of our future unity um, and lay aside all of the stuff that um, so easily besets us and press in to the gift. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Like, oh, man. So what you're saying is do it every week. Got it. All right, everybody, <laughs> go to your prospective pastors and churches. Tell them you're going to do it every week now. One of the things I loved about my mentor, Robert Weber, who um, is was at Wheaton College, and we lost um, an, 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 for an untimely death, and he wrote a wonderful book called Ancient Future Christians, and a ton of books. But, you know, it excited Robert. He was an evangelical who ended up in the Episcopal Church, Um and he would get so what really got him excited was when Baptists and non-denoms and Pentecostals and charismatic churches got in touch with him and said, how can we, you know, incorporate the church, the sacred year? How can we incorporate a weekly Eucharist? How can we incorporate all these practices within the culture and within the ethos of how we do church, rather than like changing everything, right? And so we're gonna we're gonna haul the altars in, and we're gonna all put vestments on, and bring the incense out. Because, you know, um, he was Robert was ex as excited when um, Christians who didn't do weekly Eucharist or didn't have patterns of doing weekly Eucharist or paying attention to the sacred year or or listening to the fathers of the church or any of the Christ ancient Christian practices when they would adopt them precisely within the churches that they were working in and raised in and part of, um, that, that was exciting. And it excites me too. I mean, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people think, well, if you're going to do this, you should become Catholic or you should become Roman Catholic or you should become Anglican or you should become a Lutheran or something. And, and I, and I just, um, you know, with Emma Gonzalez, I just call BS. I think you can do it in your church and setting where you are and uh and then we should all start coming together for it too uh so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna play this game anymore where i think i know the some of the things that you're saying because you've said the the word secret year in a few times and i've nodded along and get okay okay and i have no idea what that is a what the, the sacred year yeah You've yeah, said it a few Mark, times, and I'm like, what is that? But yeah, I just played yeah, along you, you and smiled. Do, you guys like, should do a show on the sacred year. I have no idea. We don't know what it is. You have to tell us. Yeah, well, it's it's just marking time by the life of Christ. So oh. that we are are with Israel, you know, anticipating their revival, arrival of Jesus and in the incarnation, the four weeks prior to Christmas. 
and then not spending mystery, accepting the the massive mystery of Christmas and recognizing it's not just about one day, but spend two or three weeks, uh, you know, meditating and marinating in the incarnation and then epiphany and start, you know, you, 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 from the visit of the wise men to Cana to the baptism of John and so forth and so on. Just really, Jesus has the, you know, his teaching and 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 healing ministry, and then right into Lent um, with Ash Wednesday and uh, the fast, the great fast that all Christians should be doing together, and uh, preparing for Holy Week and the mystery of the cross. And as as Jason was saying earlier, let's stop being audience members. Let's be participants, yeah. not only in the services. Um, but out out in the world, and you know, be, start living Christmas. I mean, the, the sacred year allows us to start actually entering into these events, especially in worship. We're at we're at the manger, we're at the feed trough, we're at the side of the cross. We don't abandon Jesus. We 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 don't go from Palm Sunday to Easter, but we're there with Jesus at the Last Supper. We're there with Jesus at, on Good Friday at the cross. We're 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 waiting with the whole church on Holy Saturday as we're not sure whether Jesus is going to be raised again and all those who doubt and struggle and 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 then the great rejoicing of Easter and then Easter the re- the mystery of resurrection for 6 weeks and then uh, not just one Sunday the mystery's too great and then on into Pentecost and the coming of the spirit and year after year after year I see things about the incarnation things about the cross Things about the life of Christ, things about Pentecost that I never saw before, Man. because I'm entering my whole, all my time and everything is ordered by the life of Jesus. So. And this also could be happening at River Church. It could be happening at Kensington. It can, it, you know, uh, you can do it at a, a Church of Christ. You can do it in a Baptist church. It, it, all of these things, like the sign of the cross, belong to all Christians because the first Christians and their practices belong to all of us. Making the sign of the cross is not a Catholic thing. It's not an Orthodox thing. It's not an Anglican thing. It's Christian. They were doing it in the first century. They were doing it in the second century. We have documentary evidence of this. So all of these gifts belong to all the church. Hmm. I, feel, I feel like I miss out on so much. I don't know if you ever feel that way. Like Jason, we have Pizza Palooza. <laughs> <laughs> At our church, <laughs> which is which it's is like great. a pizza potluck. Everybody brings a different kind of pizza, and we all partake. Yeah. That's awesome. I want I want to worship in that church. Yeah. That sounds, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, Pizza Palooza. I definitely want an invitation to Pizza Palooza. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> as as it's not during Lent. Yeah. Okay. Is that what and, you, is that what you give up for Lent? Is pizza? No, I I gave up a lot of things for Lent, but that's it's not important. The the. <laughs> Like you casually brushed that off. Yeah, yeah, I know. It no, could be yeah, everything no. or nothing at all. We don't know. <laughs> no, Lent is not about what we do. Lent is about what God does. Oh man, in us, we don't, we don't, we don't fast in Lent to change God's mind about us. God already has a consistent favor and love and regard for all human creatures. We enter the fast at Lent in order. Because it allows us to become part of who he is. That's why we do it. It's not to change God or make uh, make him think better about us or to be better than anybody else. Um, so. so interesting. I know. Uh, to me, like, I was talking to my dad about this today because we, we were talking about Catholics and Catholic practices and how 
how much we think we know about because of based off the stuff that we've read, but it's all coming from our viewpoint. Yeah. And how much of it's actually from talking to people who are Catholic and and the reason I'm I'm tipped off by that because when I was going to the Church of Christ, one of the elders there was really keyed into um, my dad was a Baptist preacher. Does your dad have a, a 1954 Baptist manual? Because that proves everything I know about the Baptists. And he really wanted that manual. I was like, really? Uh, they, we don't really practice that stuff, or it's a lot different than it was written down in 1954. Like, that's the end-all, be-all. And to me, I some of that division, I think, comes from just not talking to one another or commu- communing with one another and trying to understand... I mean, because you're saying so many things that I could just get behind on just drawing near to Christ as a full desire. What and, it's all about, man. And resting completely in Christ's works. Because that's what it's I... It's so important. And I, and I think one of the great gifts that we have as 21st century Christians is to be in conversation with Orthodox, to be in conversation with Anabaptists, to be in conversation with Pentecostals and Methodists and Presbyterians and Calvinists. It's when, I think one of the curse of our divisions is that we only see glimpses of who Jesus is from our parochial standpoint. Mm -hmm. Whether we're at River Church or we're at Holy Redeemer or we're at St. Andrews or we're at St. George's or we're at Kensington, we only see part of who Jesus is, and it's when we get into conversation, this isn't something God wants, it's just something we've imposed on ourselves. When we get in conversation with Missouri Synod Lutherans, and and we get in conversation with Baptists, and so forth, we begin to see the big picture of who Jesus is, because each of us has a piece of it. And, and it's when we humble ourselves and begin to have conversation across a the wide spectrum of the church that this enormous beautiful portrait of Jesus starts to emerge in our minds and hearts and that's the kind of thing that's going to change the world is when we start to see the big picture of Jesus. So, oh, yeah, man. we don't we don't worship little Jesus, big Jesus. No, I just yeah. everything you're saying reminds me of this movie I watched last night about aliens. It's called What? <laughs> it's called Arrival, where these twelve spaceships landed at different parts of the Really pl- interesting. Yeah, I saw that. Did, did you see the movie? I did. Okay, so these twelve uh crafts land at different regions of the earth and the thing is is people have to communicate together. Like each of them has a piece of the puzzle to put together and everything you're saying just reminds me that because people are coming from all of these different backgrounds have this different viewpoint of jesus this different perspective and unless we work together and talk to one another we'll never see the full picture so so important right and then like in the ancient world when they would make an icon um or excuse me like a mosaic floor there was what they called a hypothesis that on the back of the tiles, the artist would write the key for putting the whole thing okay. back together, right? Because they make it on a floor in one place, yeah. say, you know, say like someplace like Damascus, and then they would ship it to, you know, Constantinople or someplace. And Irenaeus talks about the rule of faith like this, is that Christ is the rule of faith and Christ is the hypothesis. And and when you have that full vision of Jesus, 
um, you can put the floor together and see Jesus. Um, but when you don't have that Jesus as the hypothesis, the image of God, you know, can come out like a fox or this is Irenaeus, um, like a fox or a bird or something other than Christ. And I think, I think that what what we want to get is to the place where where we're in conversation with all Christians, so that mosaic of Jesus comes together, and we're looking into the face of the Father because. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It's the uncreated light of the Father that shines from the face of Jesus. And it's not just for us. It's for the it's for everyone. Yeah. You know, I loved the readings on Sun uh, on Sunday this last week where in Genesis it says that Abraham is the father of uh, and, and then Paul picks it up and says, Abraham is the father of us all. It says the promises to all of Abraham's descendants. So guess what? That means the Muslims too. And you know that means when when the when the scripture says all that means everyone. This is an inheritance and a gift for all human beings, mm. and so we have to just like get out of this thing where we are um, constantly trying to diminish God and God's plan and God's purpose, and begin to see a much that this whole this thing is about nothing less than retaking the world and retaking every human being um, to become part of their eternal life together. So that before we show up with the gospel, God has already done something in Jesus Christ to reconcile himself to every human being that we meet by being their creator, whether they acknowledge it or understand it or not, God created everyone. And Jesus became every person's human brother. This happens, the creation and the brotherhood of Jesus with every person happens before we even open our mouth. God has already done something to reconcile every person we meet with him. And so this is about a big, big picture. And I'm, I'm glad this has been one of the funnest podcasts I've ever done. Jason <laughs> Alex. So thanks for uh, having me on. Oh yeah, man. Oh, what was There's I going to say? There, there was, there. and I, I had something to go along with it. Now I can't. Oh, I mean, I mean, you saying, uh, the the working of the church and I, I mean we we've talked a lot about it it's it's division and it's brokenness but we're also living in a kind of a miracle too right where it's still going two two thousand years later or so yeah Rome she it's, gone it's, the Hittites they gone <laughs> the church I'm not sure still <laughs> here. <laughs> It's, it's still here. It's just amazing. Even in, even in all of its it's broken. That's why I always call it the the Frankenstein body, right? It's it's not in its perfected form yet. One day it's going to be, and it's going to be awesome. My my friend Scott Jones says that it's not in it. It's it, the the beauty is in its perfectibility, right? Not not that it already has perfection, but that and he says that about creation too. The goodness of creation is in its in its capacity to be made perfect, not in you know. Not that it was originally perfect. I mean, you have to think about that for quite a while. But when you said he, still here, I think it was Alex that said still here. It reminded me of this African-American pastor in Chicago. And I went to – we used to go here and preach every once in a while. And he was preaching on the, the, the resurrection. And it's so wonderful. He was going through all of these instances in the scriptures, right, where people emerge. Like Jonah emerges three days from the belly of the well. 
the three Hebrew children emerge from the fire. Daniel emerges from the lion's den, right? And in each of these stories, as he told them in this very colorful and beautiful way, he would say, as the as Jonah comes out, he would say, "Still here," you know. And all, all the all the deacons and everybody would stand up and like you know point their fingers at the pastor, you know. And then you know they all sit down, and then he'd get to the three Hebrew children, and he would say. You know, they open it up and they would all say, still here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, you know, and, then it, and then it was like Lazarus. And then it finally with Jesus, right? Jesus, three days. And then Jesus emerged and he says, still here. <laughs> That's awesome. I might have to, I might have to take that. <laughs> so that's that so awesome. I love that sermon. Uh, so one last question, Kenneth, because our listeners are broad and various and all over the world. And whoever's going to listen to this, What's something they can take away from this going to their respective churches? How can they how can they have a better communion experience this coming Sunday? Uh, what's what's one piece of advice you can you can give them? So if you end up in a church where you're not allowed to take communion, um, I would say um, either pray in your pew or walk up and cross your hands because they'll bless you in churches where they they won't let you take the Eucharist. Just Ask the Lord to make that not being able to take Eucharist a participation in his own pain at the division of the church. Don't get angry. Don't get bitter. um, Don't be envious. Just say, Lord, help me to understand my exclusion from this meal as your own, a participation in your own pain. But everywhere where you can go and the Eucharist is being offered, just, just before it say, Lord, this is so beautiful that I like the like the woman who's crawling on the ground to reach you. I am going to take your very self on my hand. I'm going to take your very self on my lips. And this is such a great privilege. And I thank you that you are making me part of the eternal life you share forever in the divine community with the Father and the Spirit. And that you are making me one with all the people that are in this room and that you're doing it and that I have nothing to do. It's just a sheer gift. And I, you know, just think on that. That's awesome. There you go. So everybody, get your gluten-free bread and your Welch's grape juice <laughs> and participate. Yeah. Did you see John Chris for the Easter video that he did where it was like, you have, we have, we have, do we have gluten-free community? Do we have oh, whole 30 and we have, I don't even know all these things. But, you know. BP free, BPA free cups. Or. Yeah, do we have vegan communion? Oh, <laughs> yeah. well, you want to get it's a awesome. pic- you want to get a picture with That's Kenneth awesome. real quick? Yeah, let's do that. Alex, man, I want to break up my little chemistry lab set. Why? Because I want to find out that it, I want to, I want to, I want to see if there's any germs left on the chalice versus the alcohol. Because he said something in there about the metal and the alcohol, it was like, like and like naturally antiseptic or something. Yeah, because like that. that would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Though, 
Because I know sometimes they have like the little the little rag and they just go like they they wipe it like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how does everybody not get sick? There has to be there has to be stories, and I know you listeners out there, there has to be stories because there was one year we had a Super Bowl party, fifty people. I mean, I mean, there was more than fifty people. There was there was probably a hundred people. And I'm not using pastor numbers. I mean, there was a lot of people in this big, huge Super Bowl party, and everybody got sick. Everybody went down. So you can't tell me that everybody's sharing the cup. There has to be instances. Maybe, it's, maybe there's some divine protection there. There could be. I, I wouldn't put it past there Jesus could be. to do that. But yeah, so you have that story about people getting sick right after this sick interview oh. with Kenneth <laughs> I like your Yeah, I like your segue there. You got any big takeaways? Uh, big takeaway is, uh, I guess for me, is the, the division and the the fear thing that we talked about. Yeah, right. the fear thing. Like, I don't want to say the, the theologian's name, but I was like, you're a really smart guy. And that was the yeah. really dumb answer. Like, make it a big deal. Make yeah. it, tag it on at the, like, make it a half hour, whatever you got to do. So I, I heard a good middle of the ground response in the same panel talking about like, so like maybe you're uncomfortable with doing it every week or still for whatever yeah. reason, you're still uncomfortable. Do it once a month and yeah. break from your, uh, from your teaching schedule. Yeah, to focus the whole service on the Lord's Supper. Did I ever tell you my idea for taking it no. every single week? No. So the the feedback I was getting from our church was is a logistical concerns. You can't really fit it in, and I understand all of that. I mean, Sunday mornings are cram packed. There's there's multiple gatherings. I wanted to do something between the gatherings in a separate room. So people leaving one and entering the next, you could you could stay late or come a little bit earlier and have this separate room for people who wanted to. So I wouldn't force this on the whole congregation, but for people who, like myself, feel like who came from the background that I did and feel like, hey, I'm missing out on this every single Sunday, they'd still be able to have that experience in yeah. communion with other believers. Yeah. I, I want to try to push for that again. I'll see where that lands. I want to push for once a month. This the yeah, one this one church definitely. at least once a month because I know you you can't the church is like a giant battleship. You just can't you can't turn on a dime. It has to be a progressive turning around it, to get you, it to. No, you you are you're absolutely. So right. I would like to see it at least once a month, and I would like to. And the, this pastor, the the way this pastor justified why they do once a month is obviously they they he said the same thing. He doesn't want to lose the reverence for it, which I I don't like that argument. But anyway, that's that's just what they do. Yeah. But he said it's been a great evangelism tool because he said there hasn't been a Sunday where they haven't preached on the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, where they spent the whole. Whatever they were preaching on, if they were preaching on Genesis 1 for seven weeks, they would take a week out to just focus on the broken body and the yeah. shed blood of Christ. And he said, you wouldn't believe just preaching a whole sermon on that, focusing on the Lord's Supper, how many people get saved. Oh, yeah. And it's like, let's do that. Like, yeah. why are we doing that? And see, I man, I love how he said, you know, all these different churches have different perspectives on Christ. And, you know, there's all these different ways to do the Lord's Supper. And I want to dig into all of them and see, like, and, and draw the biggest the spoon, picture. You put the bread in the, in the cup and then yeah. in the, you spoon it. I never heard of that. That is cool. I used to do that with sugar cubes inside my Kool-Aid. <laughs> you know? Let's let's talk about the sugar content Dude, of that Kool-Aid. I put so much sugar in my Kool-Aid. 
<laughs> that it grew mold. Like it, oh. it grew a film over it. We let it sit overnight. It was growing things. That's just that's just dis. Oh no! And I think that's the no, perfect the perfect no. time to move on to feedback. Eh? Yeah, let's move on to feedback. <laughs> what do you got for us, Jason, buddy, my friend? Oh, uh, cue the music. All right, and our feedback today. So we did our episode on baptism, and we kind of told some of our stories about baptism, and I wanted yeah. to hear other people's. You know, what's what's your story on baptism? How'd you get dunked? Well, either that or just as a pastor, your weird experience. And a couple of people got back to me, one of them being Dan Taylor. Oh, hi, Dan. Yes, Edmonton's top comic. I don't know if that, that title's still true or not. But it was at one point, and he's very funny, and he's been on our show twice. We need to make it three times. Three times a charm. He says, mostly I'm thinking, don't die. (laughs) (laughs) I baptized an 80-year-old man in an Alberta lake and was just thinking, don't die. (laughs) Would would that be considered manslaughter? That would be considered manslaughter because it would be an accident. I'm, it's got to be. I don't summertime. know what the law up there in Canada is. How warm does it stay in Alberta during the, even the summer? I don't know. You think it gets up into the 80s up in Alberta? I would say maybe. Maybe Alberta's up there, man. It's maybe up they're there. lucky though. They could be. Maybe they're lucky though, eh? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the Bewildered Men podcast. Ah, it's a new podcast. I've listened to a handful of episodes. Great. It's 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 great. You guys just welcome should to check the it world out. of podcasts. Yeah, welcome to the Pottern family. Uh, the bewildered men. He said, "Yes, my father baptized me in a good old country farm pond. The fish were biting us the entire time, and I walked out horrified." Okay, story story about that. Not to not to be a one. Oh, you're gonna one up them. I don't want to one up them, but it, this reminds me. So we did. So have you been? You've been to the camp that our church owns, right? Oh, yeah. That's it's leeches galore. So kids were getting baptized, and it was like, hurry up, dunk them, get them out of the water, because the leeches literally, they, they come out of the seaweed like, what's the, what's almost like something out of like Jurassic Park or something. Oh, man. Those, those leeches are freaky. They're gigantic. They're huge, but oh, my gosh. I was like, I ain't Jurassic size leeches. I'm not getting baptized in that. I don't need to get baptized. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to send my kid there. Oh, man, we had this competition up there where we built these little rafts uh-huh. to see who could float, like out of cardboard and a garbage bag, and you got like a roll of duct tape, and you had to build rafts. And my kid got chosen to ride. Oliver was chosen to ride the raft to the other end. I was like, we got to make this thing so he doesn't go in the water because I don't want those leeches to eat him. He's just little. <laughs> <laughs> those things creep me right on. Okay, anyway, uh, Covert Nerd. I think he's becoming a regular listener. If you guys haven't, you should check out his podcast. Stay on the DL, Covert. Yeah. Uh, he's um, talking about our episode with Justin Dillon. He said, Justin has some good ideas. One that was obvious was, um, I'm going to put air quotes around this, just start. Don't wait. Often we can s- someday, again, air quotes, we can someday our life away. Someday I will go and talk with my neighbor. Someday I will help at my local shelter. Someday I will patch things up with my parents. Someday, someday, someday. Someday, someday, someday. <laughs> NASCAR. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Like, <laughs> I knew it was coming. You teed it up for me. <laughs> Talk about a hole in one. <laughs> oh. We can't keep doing this. No, he's absolutely right, though. I mean, I love that. That whole idea of not asking permission. If you haven't listened to our episode with Justin Dillon, 
you're missing out. Go back and listen to it. Yeah. And then finally from Rocky Glenn on Twitter and reply to the posting of Holly's sermon, which we did. Okay. So pulpit number 20, Holly B. How do I know that I'm saved? Um, Rocky Glenn says this, hope and grace wrapped up in six minutes that somehow has occupied 20 minutes of my time with three listens today. That's just awesome. And People just be playing it and yeah, playing it. I mean, I encourage all of you to blow up our play count by just hitting repeat on uh, on Holly's sermon. Not only does it, not only will it nourish your soul, but it it looks good for people who want to sponsor us. <laughs> that was a terrible segue. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, like to get to get that project some traction, like that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Hit, hit play thousand times over yeah so jason do you want to mention that we have patreon yeah we, okay so a couple weeks ago we started our patreon page uh patreon.com backslash nypp where you can go on there and support us and alex we have the first deaconess of not your pastor's podcast and her name is phoebe wait it's Carrie Jelly. It's Carrie Jelly. <laughs> Bible jokes. Bible jokes. <laughs> People can see your dance right now. We really need to go to video, which is one of our goals. <laughs> which we need five hundred dollars. Yeah, we need to raise some some capital so we can go back to video like we originally started, but in a basement instead of an old abandoned church. Right. Absolutely. That's. I mean, your basement's a whole lot less creepier than that church was. Yeah, that's for sure. Oh, I told somebody a ghost story from there, but that's 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 another episode. Yeah. Anyway, Jason, we got to wrap this show up. Yeah, man. We got to wrap it up with a neat little bow because the next service is coming in, so we don't have time. <laughs> we don't have time to do the Lord's Supper, so we gotta we gotta get we gotta get to getting. So just we had to say goodbye to somebody this week. Yeah. And I'm not talking about Billy Graham. I'm talking about Thomas Tatar yeah, from the Detroit Red Wings. And no disrespect to Mr. Graham, but this is how we always end our show with a little hockey talk. Yep. So where's he going? Did they say where he's going? Thomas Tatar has now become a member of the Vegas Golden Knights. Are they still the number one team? Yes, in the Western Conference. Isn't that crazy? An expansion team is number one in that's nutty. Like, what if they finish first overall in the Western Conference? That would that would be. I don't think that's ever happened before. No, not for an expansion team. Never. Okay, so here's my uh, my uh, hockey dom Nostradamus hockey <laughs> hockey dom. I don't know. Here's hockey, my prediction. Hockey Domus. <laughs> hockey Domus. Uh, they're going down in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, probably. don't care who they're playing. You got to put your dues in in the playoffs. You got to do it. But but yeah, Thomas Tatar is he's gone. I hope I hope they can do something with him because he wasn't doing anything for the Wings. Uh, yeah, more or less. Anyway, we're gonna miss you, Tommy, Tommy, T- Tommy Tatar sauce. So Jason, mm-hmm. what do you want to say to Tommy as he's going out to Vegas? You should probably stay away from gambling, stay away from the strip clubs, and he should just keep your stick on the ice. That's right. Do it, Tommy. Have a good one, everybody.